I'd like to begin our time today with a very simple question. The question is this. Are we the surrendered servants of our Savior? Are we the surrendered servants of our Savior? And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to to first of all know that the word surrendered, well, it speaks of those who yield to the power or to the control of another. And let's be honest, no one likes to surrender to the authority of another. We love our autonomy. We love to have our own way. We love to promote our own agenda. And so the, the whole concept of surrendering to the authority of another, it really kind of grinds our gears a little bit. It kind of goes against the desires that we have naturally. And so with that, we have to ask, are we the surrendered servants of our Savior? In the context of this question, the word surrender speaks of those who cease their struggle against the supremacy of God. And while I get it, it's really easy to find ourselves wrestling and struggling with God. The surrendered servant is the one who stops the struggle. And let's be honest, while it's very easy to wrestle with God, we usually walk away with a limp. And so we need to become those surrendered servants of our Savior. As we consider this concept of surrendering, I'd like to rephrase the question in this way. Have we stopped struggling with God so that we can simply spend our lives serving our Savior? Or is it true that we're still serving our own selfish interests as we attempt to accomplish our own agenda? Now, before we rush to answer these questions, we ought to spend some time considering uh, what, it, what it really looks like and what it really means to surrender to our Savior. What does it really look like to become the surrendered servants of Jesus Christ? And, and so as we make our way through the text before us today, we're going to begin to see, first of all, that the surrendered servants of our Savior, well, we're first steadfast. Secondly, we'll learn that the surrendered servants of our Savior are strategic Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the surrendered servants of our Savior are submissive. With this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting a parable in order to present the people with a lesson about what it means to be a surrendered servant. And as you make your way to the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context It'll first help us to remember that the Lord Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem. And and the reason why is because the time had come for him to offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. I'll remind you, it was in our last study when we learned about that day when Jesus entered into the city of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And it was there in Jericho where he met a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And, and, and we learned about the way that Zacchaeus became a servant of our Savior. And it was there in the home of Zacchaeus where uh, Jesus informed his audience that he not only came to save Zacchaeus, but he came to seek and to save the lost. And as the people listened to him teaching, that's when he went on to present this parable that we find here in our text today. With this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 19. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 11, here Luke declares, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom 
and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minus, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful with a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting the people with yet another parable. And just to be clear, it'll help you to remember that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus is presenting this earthly story in order to communicate a, a, a heavenly meaning. And, and, and listen, we don't know how many parables Jesus presented during the days of his earthly ministry, but I want to just remind you that we've already taken the time to study several parables throughout the gospel of Luke. This includes, of course, the parable of the sower, the parable of the good Samaritan, and the parable of the mustard seed. We also spent time studying the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, otherwise known as the prodigal son. But now here in our text today, we find Christ Jesus. He's presenting this parable about 10 minas. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that a mina was a sacred weight, which was equal to 60 shekels. And to help you out, it'll help you to know that that 60 shekels was equivalent to one sacred talent. So that clears it all up for you, right? According to David Guzik, 10 minas would have been worth about three months of wages for the working man. And as we factor in Bidenflation, well, 10 minus is about worth uh, uh, one tank of gas now. So uh, before we consider this financial investment that, that this nobleman was making as he uh, imparted 10 minus to 10 different servants, uh, we should first consider the, the purpose of the parable. What's the purpose of this parable? Well, with this as the focus, let's back up. Let's take another look there at Luke 19, verse 11. Here Luke writes, Now, as they heard these things, as, as they heard what Jesus was saying there at the house of Zacchaeus, he then spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. 
Okay, so Luke here is describing the reason for why the Lord presented the people with this parable. Simply put, well, the Lord Jesus, he knew that his disciples were operating under the impression that he was leading them to the temple in Jerusalem in order to immediately usher in the kingdom of God. That's what they thought. The hope that they had as they followed Jesus to Jerusalem is that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to go go to the temple. He was going to receive the the crown of King David and sit upon the throne and chase the Romans out. That's what these guys are thinking as they're following Jesus to Jerusalem. And what they failed to grasp was that Jesus had a different plan. And it's a plan that is illustrated in this parable. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 19. I want to draw your attention back to verse 12. Here the Lord Jesus declares, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And here in the beginning of this parable, we find the Lord Jesus, he's describing the protagonist of this parable as this certain nobleman. In other words, this was a man of noble birth. And this man of noble birth went to a distant country so that he could become a crowned king before then returning to his homeland. In this way, Jesus was helping his disciples to understand that the kingdom of God wouldn't be established as quickly as they were hoping. Yeah, he was going to Jerusalem. But no, there wouldn't be this immediate kingly crowning that they were hoping for. The Lord Jesus wouldn't be crowned king until after his ascension into heaven. To prove my point, I would remind you of the vision that John records in Revelation chapter 19. There he declares, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here in this vision, we find John describing the second coming of Christ Jesus. John has this vision of Jesus Christ at the time of his return, and and there we find Christ Jesus. He's first seated upon this white war horse as he returns to the earth, all tatted up, king of kings and lord of lords on his thigh. We also find him crowned with a kingly diadem as he comes to establish his millennial kingdom. We learn there that on his head were many crowns. And what this means is that the Lord Jesus, as he presented the parable about the nobleman who goes away and is crowned king and then returns, Jesus was parabolically referring to himself. He's the one, he's the nobleman who, who goes to a far off country and receives for himself a kingdom that before then returning. 
This is all about Jesus, his ascension into heaven, his being crowned king, and then his second coming. With all this in mind, let's take another look here at Luke chapter 19. I want to draw your attention back to verse 12. Here the Lord Jesus declares a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas, and said to them, do business till I come. Now as we take a closer look at this parable, we can see here Jesus was not only describing the day of his departure when he would go and receive his kingly crown, but but he was also helping them to understand that he had a plan for those who would become his servants during the time of his departure. He's saying, hey, while I'm gone, I've got a plan for you. Between the point in time of my ascension until the day of my return, I have a plan for my servants. And with that, I'd like to take a moment to consider the way in which this certain nobleman here in this parable instructed his ten servants in how they should serve. And, and just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that the word servants, it's found there in verse 13, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who have devoted themselves to the will of another and even to the disregard of their own interests. Think about that for a moment. To be a servant, it means to disregard your own self-interests so that you can devote yourself to the interest of another. No wonder why so many people would rather not be a servant. Because I have no doubt that we all love to pursue our own interests, to, to, to devote ourselves to our own desires. And yet the Lord has called us to become his servants. As we consider the meaning of the word servant, I'd like to look again here at Luke chapter 19, verse 13. Here again, Jesus tells us about how this nobleman called 10 of his servants and then delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. In other words, the nobleman hands his servant this sum of money and then commands them to get to work. He says, here's my money. Now get to work until I return. Do business, occupy yourself with my business until I come back. That word business is translated from a Greek word which was used of bankers and traders. And as we consider the point of this parable, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord Jesus was helping his disciples to understand that he is calling those who trust in him to accomplish the work of the Lord. To prove my point, we should take some time to consider how the Lord currently calls every Christian to become surrendered servants who are busy accomplishing the holy business of our king. The proof of my point can be found in the fact that, that the Greek word here, which is rendered servants, it's the same Greek word which is used of those who become born-again believers. Yeah, born-again believers are often time oftentimes in the scriptures called servants. For example, in 2 Corinthians, we find Paul using the same Greek word translated servants. He, he, he uses that word in referring to believers as the bond servants for Jesus' sake. Now, Christians are bond servants for Jesus' sake. 
Again, in 2 Timothy, Paul uses the same Greek word when he refers to Christians as servants of the Lord. So it's true, Christian, that that we've been called to become the servants of our Savior. To further prove my point, Jesus uses the same Greek word to describe his disciples. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus using the same Greek word to to refer to his disciples. For example, it's in John chapter 18, verse 36, where he declares, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. He, He was referring to his disciples when he says, My servants would fight. Those who trust in Jesus Christ, we have been called to become his servants. And, and while it's true that we are his servants, the question that we ought to ask is this, are we surrendered servants? I mean, it's one thing to say that I'm a servant of the Lord, but listen, a servant of the Lord does what? Serves. The servant of the Lord serves. And with that, we ought to take some time to examine our own lives by asking, am I truly a servant? And by that, what I mean to ask is, are we surrendering our life to the authority of our king? Or are we still just serving our own selfish desires? Are we faithfully using the mina that he's supplied to us? Or are we wasting the resources that we've received according to our own selfishness? With these questions in mind, I want to consider how Jesus presented the same parable a second time after arriving in Jerusalem. It's actually found in Matthew chapter 25. This is later in time when the Lord Jesus presents this parable a second time and elaborates on it a little bit. It's Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14, where Jesus declares the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful Christian. Oh, no, that's not what it says. Well done, good and faithful believer. Nope. Well done, good and faithful leader. Not at all. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. From this, we can see that it's the servant who faithfully invests their talents who are then rewarded and applauded and commended by the Lord. The servant who faithfully invested their talents 
are then rewarded with more opportunities to serve our sovereign, sovereign king. And, 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 and again, he doesn't give us more than, than our ability. And yet he does expect us to be faithful in the way that we serve. And as we consider the meaning of this parable, there should be no doubt in our minds that Christ Jesus is calling every Christian to become surrendered servants who are faithfully accomplishing the work of the Lord. And and with this as the goal, it's no wonder that Paul called every Christian to become steadfast servants of our Savior. This was precisely the point that Paul made in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's verse 58 where Paul declares, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Christian, listen, the servants of the Lord have have been called to become faithful and and good, but but specifically steadfast. We are to be steadfast servants. And listen, the steadfast servant cannot be moved from our calling in Christ. And the reason why is because we are completely surrendered to the will of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The servant comes along and says, not my will, but your will be done. And we surrender to that. And then the Holy Spirit empowers us to be steadfast in that commitment. Well, I realize that it's a difficult thing to disregard our own personal desire to be devoted to the will of another. We can at least rejoice in knowing that it's the steadfast servants of our Savior who then abound in the work of the Lord. And as we abound in the work of the Lord, we can also rejoice in knowing that we're going to be rewarded. We're going to be rewarded on the day when we finally hear the Lord declare, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, steadfast servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now this brings us to our second point, because listen, the surrendered servants of our Savior are not only steadfast as we continue serving, but the surrendered servants of our Savior are are also strategic in the way we go about serving our Savior. And to explain what I'm saying, let's continue to consider the parable that Jesus was presenting to the people there in Jericho. If you would, let's turn our attention back to Luke chapter 19. I want to focus your attention there at verse 14. There, the Lord Jesus informs his audience that his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. I want to stop right there. I want to consider the the way in which the Lord Jesus was using this parable in order to prepare his disciples for the day when the leaders there in Israel would reject the king of kings. Remember, the disciples thought that they were heading to Jerusalem so that Jesus could receive the throne of David. They they were imagining that they were going to arrive there in Jerusalem and, and, and the Lord Jesus would just be ushered up to the temple. He would receive the crown of David and cast the Romans out and everything would be hunky dory. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew that the religious leaders of Israel were going to reject him that they were going to call for his crucifixion, that he would die on the cross and then rise from the grave on the third day. And it's for this reason that he presented them with this contrast between the surrendered servants who are investing their mina and the hateful citizens who were unwilling to surrender to the authority of the king. 
See, he, he, he recognized that, that these hateful citizens were, were, were going to reject his leadership. They were unwilling to become the surrendered servants of our Savior. And, and at the same time, it's also true that the, the unbelievers in the world around us will continue with the, with the same level of rejection. Much like the first century, the unbelievers in the world today will reject those who become the surrendered servants of our Savior. And, and in order to prove my point, I want to consider a word of warning that Jesus presented to his disciples. It was during the Last Supper. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. If you would, let's turn to John chapter 15. As you make your way to the 15th chapter of John's Gospel account, I just want to point out that we find here the Lord Jesus, he's assuring his servants that those citizens who hate the king will also hate the surrendered servants of the king. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's been crowned king. We're waiting for his return. At this point in time, we are to do business or occupy until his return. And, and, and the same sort of people that hated Jesus in the first century, they're the same people who will hate his servants here in the 21st century. Let's consider how Jesus puts it here in John chapter 15. Look with me there, beginning at verse 18. Here Jesus declares, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant, notice, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Christian, listen, the citizens who hated Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry, well, they were the same servants, that, uh, the same citizens who went on to hate his servants. The religious leaders who called for the crucifixion of Christ were the same religious leaders who then called for the persecution of Christians. And, and we must not fail to recognize that the same hatred still exists in, in the hearts of those who are, even today, rejecting the rule of of our Redeemer. Just check it out for yourself. Just, just on social media today, whatever accounts that you use, go, go, go just pro, you know, post the gospel message. Tell people that are sinners to repent and trust in Jesus Christ so that they can be saved because he's the only way. See what happens. Just, just see how many people just come against that. The, the, the people who hated Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry, well, the, the same hatred still exists. It's just, it's just that Jesus isn't here on the planet. So who, who is this hatred focused on? The servants of our Savior. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Lord Jesus actually encouraged every believer to become strategic servants who rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit as we go about serving our Savior. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 10. That's where the Lord Jesus says this. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Christian, listen, as we consider the way in which the, the Lord has sent his servants into the world, you know, like, like sheep being sent into a wolf's den, well, it's no wonder that he calls us to be wise. He's saying, I'm, you're, you're my sheep, I'm going to send you into a den of wolves. Be strategic. Be wise. Be, be as wise as serpents. Now, I don't know if you've ever owned a snake or been around snakes, but, but, but think about it for a moment. What, what if your face was your only defense mechanism? You've got no arms. You've got no legs to run. The, the, the only thing that you've got is you can bite. You know, how, how wise will you be when it comes to people messing with you? A group of us went mountain biking yesterday and came across about a four or five foot rat snake. And as he looked at me, I rode right past him and I was like, oh, snake. Next thing you know, he turns around and starts trucking up under the, under the tree so I can't get to him. And the, and the next thing I know, he's climbing a tree. And so I went over and grabbed his tail and started messing with him. And so he just went faster, you know, he wanted to get away from the Sasquatch. He was wise about it. He realized that he needed to get higher up than, than I could reach. And we need to be wise like a serpent. Harmless as doves. We shouldn't make it our aim to, to harm anybody. But we need to be strategic as we accomplish the ministry that the Lord has given to us. You see, there are still wicked rulers in this world who are ready to persecute the servants of our Savior because they hate Jesus Christ and they don't want to hear about it. Thankfully for us, the Holy Spirit is here to guide us so that we can be spiritually strategic in the way that we go and accomplish our calling. With this as the goal, I want to turn back to Luke chapter 19. I want to consider the goal of becoming these strategic servants who are surrendered to our Savior. And if you would look with me here at Luke 19, beginning at verse 15, here the Lord Jesus, he continues to present this parable by declaring, and so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's describing this day when the protagonist in the parable finally returns from his journey. And, and this, of course, is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ when Jesus returns and rewards those who faithfully served him during our, day, our days here on earth. And just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know, I'm not referring to the great white throne judgment where unbelievers are going to be judged. No, instead, I'm referring to this judgment of, of the Bema seat where believers are rewarded for 
for the ways we served our Savior. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the way that Paul describes the Bema seat judgment in his letter to the Christians in Corinth. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you make your way to the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that it's here in 1 Corinthians 3 where we find Paul. He's helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that the Lord has given every believer a window of opportunity so that we can serve him. The Lord has given every believer a window of opportunity so that we can serve him. And not only that, but according to Paul, there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus will return. And it's at that point when he will reward every born again believer for the time we spent surrendering our lives for the sake of serving our Savior. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, look with me there, beginning at verse 10. Here Paul declares, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire." Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that we're all going to be cast into purgatory at some point in time. And no, that's not, that's not what this means at all. There's coming a day when the Lord Jesus returns and sets up the Bema seat judgment when he begins to reward those who spent their time serving him. At the same time, we must not fail to recognize here that, that we've been called to serve our Savior according to a doctrinal floor plan or, or if you would, theological blueprint, uh, which is uh, given to Paul, the wise master builder. That's what Paul refers to himself as, the wise master builder. The reason why is because the foundational principles for the church were given to him. It's spelled out in the epistles, and we are to look to the epistles as the blueprint or the floor plan for how we are to build the church, not the structure, the building, but the body of believers. We are to, we are to use the, the scriptures and specifically the New Testament epistles as a doctrinal basis for becoming strategic servants who are building the church according to the instructions that we've been given. At the same time, we, we also learn that there are some materials that we ought to use and other materials that we shouldn't use. As a matter of fact, look with me again at 1 Corinthians 3. It's there at verse 12 where Paul declares, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work. Notice that it's the believer whose work is being tested. It's not the believer being tested, but their work. Their work is being put to the test, being tried by fire. And, and consider how fire reacts with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Some of that's going to be burned right up. Some of that will endure. So the question is, are you building with gold, silver, and precious stones? Or are you building with wood, hay, and straw, which will be easily burned up by the holy fire of God? 
Clearly, the Lord expects us to be strategic servants who are building with the proper building materials uh, according to the instructions that we find in the Holy Word of God. And so we should be those strategic servants who realize that you know, we, we need to invest our mina wisely. The time that we've been given, the resources that we've been handed, we need to invest it correctly. And those who invest their mina in the work of God today will receive a greater reward at the time of the Lord's return. And so that, in that we can rejoice. But please understand that it's not that you can just live your life any old way as a Christian and then expect one day to be rewarded for, for doing a bunch of stuff in the flesh. If you spend your time building with wood, hay, and straw, don't expect rewards at the, at the end of the day. Because all that's just going to be burned up in the fle- you know, by the fire of God because it was nothing more than flesh. We need to be surrendered servants who are steadfast as we serve, but it's not just about being steadfast. We must be also strategic so that we spend our time wisely using the proper building materials according to the instructions that God has given us. Finally, then, the surrendered servant of our Savior must be submissive in the way we serve him. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 19. Here we find the Lord Jesus directing the attention of his audience to, the, to this servant who failed to follow the instructions that he had received. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 20. Here Jesus declares, then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a, a handkerchief. For I feared you because you were an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minus. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minus. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Here in, the, in this section of this parable, you know, we find the Lord Jesus. He's, he's describing the fear of this unfaithful servant. And while it's true that he didn't do anything that you know, would cause him to lose the mina that he received, it's also true that he was failing to submit to the clear instructions that his king had given him. Yeah, he didn't do anything that would risk losing the mina. You know, he took it and he wrapped it up in his old COVID handkerchief, you know, and hid it for fear of losing it. And yet, in this decision, was being disobedient. Lord Jesus didn't tell him to hide the money, but rather to invest it, to trade with it. At the very least, put it in the bank. Let it gain some interest. The instructions were clear. Do business till I come. Get to work. 
And yet this wicked servant was so afraid to lose the money that, that he simply failed to follow the command of his king. And it's there in verse 22 where the Lord Jesus again tells, that, uh, tells us that the nobleman comes to the servant and says, out of your own mouth I will judge you. You wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I may have collected it with interest? Now clearly this nobleman knew all about Dave Ramsey's plan to, uh, to save money. But, uh, but the Lord here is, is presenting this parable in order to help his disciples to understand that he's expecting his servants to serve him until the time of his return. And not only that, but he was also helping them to realize that at the time of his return, he's planning to examine our works. He's going to examine our works. And, and not only that, uh, he's going to reward those who were obedient, but there's, there, there's consequences you know, for, for those who aren't. As a matter of fact, notice again here in Luke chapter 19, it's verse 24, where there, this returning king says to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. And the nobleman says, yeah, so? He wasn't faithful with it. I'd rather the person who was faithful and invested and traded and did the business, I'd rather that person have more than to continue to to allow this person to be unfaithful with it. Jesus here is helping his audience to understand that the Bema Seat judgment of Jesus will not only include rewards for those who became surrendered servants, but there's going to be a loss of rewards for those who failed to submit themselves to the instructions that we find in the Great Commission of Christ Jesus. And as we consider the way that this mina was taken away from the unfaithful servant, it's important for us to realize that there will be many believers at the bema seat of Jesus Christ who are going to lose their rewards. And the reason why is because they didn't submit. They didn't submit to the instructions of our Savior. This was the point that Paul was making back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he informs us that each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Yeah, this is not an issue of salvation here. Again, the believer's not being judged. The works of the believer are being judged. And so this isn't a salvific issue, and yet at the same time, it's important to understand there's going to be many Christians who are entering into heaven smelling like smoke. Many Christians who will be entering into heaven by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin, which is why I grow my beard as long as I do. Many Christians who will discover there at the beam of seat that they were unfaithful with the mind that they received. And there's going to be a loss of reward for those who failed to submit to the simple commands of our King Jesus. And what's even worse is that the Lord is also going to condemn every unbeliever 
who rejected his authority. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 19. I want to focus your attention there at verse 27. Here the noble king declares, bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. The Lord here is referring now to the great white throne judgment, which is different from the Bema seat. The Bema seat judgment, this is when the works of believers are tried by fire and, and while the works of the flesh are burned up, we're also rewarded for the ways that we served our Savior in the Spirit. In contrast to this, the great white throne judgment, which, which is going to take place at the end of Christ's millennial reign, this is when the Lord Jesus condemns the wicked works of every unbeliever as he opens up the books and gives them a righteous judgment for every sin they ever committed. And at that point in time, they're cast into the lake of fire. Knowing that the great white throne judgment is inevitable. The best advice that I can give any unbeliever on the planet today is simply this. Submit. Submit to our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever who's currently rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ, please believe me when I tell you, you're going to bow a knee today or you're going to bow a knee at the great white throne judgment. You're going to bow a knee to Jesus Christ. You will confess that he is Lord. And you can do that unto salvation or, or you can do that to everlasting condemnation. The choice is yours. And you might be thinking, well, that's not very much of a choice. Well, these are the choices. But you will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord at some point in time. The benefit for, for the believer is that, you know, we, we submit you know, to the Lord unto salvation today, whereas the unbeliever bows a knee, confesses Christ as Lord, and is then condemned for every sin. I encourage every unbeliever who's currently rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ to realize that he will return, and he will call for those who rejected his rule, and they will be condemned to everlasting torment. And so the simple solution is surrender to our Savior by faith in his substitutionary sacrifice. He came and died on the cross to pay for our sins so that sinners like us could be saved. He doesn't want to condemn sinners. He wants to save sinners. But he leaves the choice to us. Sinners are saved from the everlasting condemnation of the laws. We submit our lives to the will of our Savior Jesus. But then, listen, after we submit our lives to the King of Kings, well, then we should continue living in submission. We should continue living in submission to our Savior by becoming surrendered servants of the Lord. And, and I like the way that James put it in James chapter 4. It's there where he declares, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Christian, listen, God isn't impressed with those who are puffed up with pride. And those who resist him, well, he resists them back. Those who resist him, he will also resist. 
Those who refuse to humble themselves in the sight of the Lord, well, then he pushes them away. Conversely, the believer who will humble themselves by becoming surrendered servants of our Savior will then begin to learn that surrendered submission is actually the path of eternal exaltation. And the reason why is because those who will humble themselves in the sight of the Lord will be exalted. With all this in mind, we should take a moment to ask, well, what does it look like then? If I am a surrendered servant, what would that look like? What would my life look like if I truly surrendered myself in submitting to our Savior? And and with this question, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. As you make your way to Mark 10, I just want to take some time to consider uh, this lesson that the Lord was presenting to his apostles and the reason for it. You see, the the apostles were constantly arguing about which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, they wanted to know whose head was going to be at the top of the marquee there in heaven. They wanted to know who was going to sit on the right hand and on the left hand of our Savior. And you see these guys jockeying for position and, and sending mom to go ask, you know, if, hey, can my boys, you know, be in the, the seats of honor there? And knowing that they were all attempting to secure the greatest seats, you know, the, the Lord Jesus continued to encourage them to simply be submissive servants. Let's consider how he puts it here in Mark chapter 10. Look with me there at verse 42. Here the Lord Jesus declares, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be, trigger warning, slave of all. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus here is helping his disciples to understand that those, of the, those who were jockeying for position and trying to be great in the kingdom, it was all ridiculous. It was all just a waste of time. And he turns their attention to his example and says, hey, just like I'm serving, I want you to serve. You remember how I washed your feet? Now I want you to wash feet. You see how I'm laying down my life, setting aside? You see how I came to serve? You serve now. Think about it. The Lord Jesus is the king of kings. There is no king higher than him. And yet he was willing to submit to the will of his heavenly father so that he could come and lay down his life, serving us so that we might be saved. And in light of his example, he turns around and says, follow in these footsteps, submit to my will so that you can become servants. Now, what does that look like? How would we know if we were truly serving in the same way that Jesus served? Well, with that, I would encourage you to study the epistles and especially a verse like Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Here, Paul says this. He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Without debate, we have liberty, freedom in the Lord. The, the Lord has set us free. 
so that with our freedom, we can turn around and say, I want to be your slave. I want to be your servant. We've been made free in Christ Jesus so that we can turn around and freely choose to serve one another for the glory of God. And so Paul here is challenging us to use our liberty in a loving way by by becoming the humble servants of one another as we submit to our Savior. And, And with that as the goal, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I truly surrendering to our Savior by serving one another with humble submission, or am I still expecting everyone else to serve me as I take the mina that I received and hold on it for my, uh, hold on to it for my myself? Do I show up to church hoping everybody else will serve me? Or do I show up to church looking for the way to serve others? And with this in mind, I should remind you about the way in which the Lord Jesus calls every Christian to do business until he returns. He, he, he didn't say go on vacation until I return. And look, I love a good vacation. But that's not the calling. He didn't say, yeah, you know, chill out. Do whatever you want until I get back. He said, do business till I return. There's no retirement plan in that. Continue doing my work until you see me again. Invest the mina that I've given you until we are face to face. With this as the goal, the question again we ought to ask ourselves is this, am I doing this? Am I humbly submitting to the great commission of our Savior by becoming his surrendered servant, or am I still resisting the authority of the king who's called us to become his servants? With all this in mind, I just want to wrap up this study by reminding you that the surrendered servants of our Savior are steadfast as we continue to accomplish our calling. The surrendered servants of our Savior are also strategic in the way we spend our time serving, knowing that there are enemies who are on the prowl. And finally, the surrendered servants of our Savior are submissive saints who yield to the supreme sovereignty of our Lord. And as we consider these characteristics of the surrendered servant, I just want to take this time to conclude the sermon by helping you to realize that the greatest privilege that we've been given is the incredible invitation that allows us to become servants of our Savior. And I get it, you know, there's a lot of debate about, you know, who the most privileged people on the planet are, and and some people seem to be very upset about these sorts of things, and yet I'm here to tell you that the most privileged people on the planet are believers who become the servants of our Savior. There is no greater privilege. And I get it. You know, we all have our goals and our desires and our dreams and our aspirations. And we, you know, we want to go to college and we want to get those letters behind our names so that we have some sort of, you know, thing that says that we're really awesome and we did a great job and these sorts of things. And, and we all have this uh, idea of what our life is going to look like. And we invest a whole lot of money to become that person. And, and at the end of the day, listen, you can attain the highest levels of leadership in the world. You can become the president of the United States and still not be as privileged as the born-again believer who is a simple servant of our Savior. You can become a globalist sitting in a seat right next to Klaus Schwab as you plan to take over the world, and still, you don't have as much privilege as the simple servant of our Savior 
who is surrendering to his will. And so that's my challenge to each one of us here today. In closing, I encourage you, surrender to the will of our Savior because this is how we become his steadfast, strategic, and submissive servants. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word and for how you use it to encourage us and challenge us and change us. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to to recognize that the greatest privilege that we have, the most pleasure we can experience is to simply serve you according to your will. Help us, Lord. Help us to do just that. Help us to recognize that a life devoted to you is far better than a life of selfish pursuits. Help us, Lord, to be those servants who are steadfast as we serve, who are strategic as we go about doing your business. Help us to be submissive as we commit our life to you. Help us to accomplish the work that you've given for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, throughout this study, as we've considered the importance of becoming surrendered servants, it's possible that it's come to your attention that you're not a believer and, and that you're not a servant of the Lord. And, and if that's something that you've realized this morning, then I encourage you to hang out with us just a little bit longer here today. You know, the team is about to lead us in one last praise song for the morning. And after that song, well, there's going to be leaders right here at the stage who'd love to talk with you and answer questions that you still might have about who Jesus is and what he's done. We want to help you to become a born-again believer so that you can become a surrendered servant of our Savior. And so if you've never before, I encourage you to come talk to these friendly folks and allow them to lead you into a faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ. I guarantee it'll be the best decision you've ever made. Until then, let's stand together and let's worship our Savior with one more song of praise.